Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Anthony Slumbers, co-founder of Real Innovation Academy and real estate innovation thought leader at AnthonySlumbers.com. We started with his background, founding one of the first occupant experience software companies back in 2001, and followed his illustrious career that eventually saw him coining the term space as a service. We unpacked what that phrase means in light of COVID, where sustainability and decarbonization fits, and finally, what a smart asset means in this context. I love this conversation because it puts technology in its place. We should be asking technology for who and technology for what. This answers it. Without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Anthony Slumbers. Hello, Anthony. Welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm glad we got this got this on the calendar. Thanks for coming. Hi, James. It's a pleasure. Likewise. I've been looking forward to it. Can you uh, start by introducing yourself for us? Okay, the, the, the quick way of it, it, explaining it, because it goes back some time, is that currently I'm the co-founder of the Real Innovation Academy, where we teach what we call the future-proof real estate course. Now, this looks at the changing nature of demand across multiple asset classes and seeks to provide the thinking required to adapt and thrive in a changing real estate world. Previously, I have over 20 plus years horrible to say, started five tech companies specializing in software for property management, office market analytics, and business productivity. And then very strangely, before that, I was a dealer in 19th century British and European art. (laughs) I also write and I tweet a lot. And when not under COVID restrictions, I do a lot of speaking at conferences and talk mainly about the future of work and space as a service, which is a term that I may on and may not have invented. I like to think I have. I, I know a certain person in America who thinks they came up with it. Um, but it is a term I'm very much as very much associated. So, um, Mr. Mr. Space as a service, if you like. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Space as a service. That's what we'll call this episode. That's a great, great episode <laughs> title. See if we can start some beef with whoever that is in the U.S. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask you, uh, I was doing research on your background. So I, I've been following your blog for a long time and you always put as the picture in your blog, uh, one of these, you know, very, very old art pieces as the main picture. Um, and so first I want to know, like, can you just talk a little bit more about what that was like as an art dealer? But then number two, I want to know, are the pieces of art connected to the message that you're writing about in the blog post? <laughs> Well, the, the intention is always to have some sort of some sort of co- connection. Unfortunately, okay. most, mostly I use re- Renaissance paintings and uh, certain modern day topics that weren't weren't very much part of the uh, the, the calendar of events uh, commemorating uh-huh. Renaissance paintings. So it's not always not always easy. Um, the the the, re- the reason for that is that actually I, I do have this rather strange background. Actually, my degree is in history and history of art, mm-hmm. and for maybe what was it, nearly nearly a decade after I graduated, I did actually work for a nineteenth century Europe, uh, British and European art dealer in uh, in 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 central central London, which which was wonderful. But the uh, you know I'd, I'd love to do that, and if I was if I was filthy rich, as they say, I'd go back to doing that. The great thing to do with our the art, art dealing is to have an awful lot of money to start with, um, have a very have a very good eye, and then you buy things and then you put them away for several years and then you bring them out again. And that's the that's the that's the skill. It's, it's, it's all it's all all in the all in the the buying. Um, so from 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 there, just just to explain. So strangely enough, at the at the time, um, a lot of dealers in in my sort of area um, also got involved with uh, property development in, hmm. in 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 London. A lot of residents, sort of high end residential um, de- developments, and we ended up, funny enough, one of the people I worked with in the gallery um, 
got got involved with doing some development uh, through one of the, the um, art gallery clients, actually, a bigger Middle Eastern chap who essentially gave us loads of money to go and play with. And so we did. Um, and so f- from working as a dealer, I then got involved with developing residential property, um, which all went swimmingly well until, oh God, this was, this is really aging me here. This was the, the crash of 80, 88, when um, everyone who was a genius suddenly became an idiot when the market, <laughs> market, market went. Um, and so actually then spent quite a few years trying to um, resurrect a development that we had gone into the recession with, trying to get ourselves out of it, the, uh, um, the, the, other, the other side. And then what happened was in actually on my birthday in 1995, um, I went into what was then the first internet cafe, because <laughs> you're too young for this, but there used to be places where you could go and connect to the internet. You, <laughs> you literally went to a shop to use the internet. Um, and I went to the f- first one of those, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And this would be great for property because, you know, there's lots of documents and lots of pictures and lots of people all over the place. I thought this would be great. So I actually thought, well, how, how the hell do you do this? You know, I've got a history of art degree. Um, so I looked into what you, needed, what you needed to be able to do a website in those days. And the entire HTML specification in, when I started was 34 sides of A4. That was it. That was everything you could do on the internet was on 34 sides of A4. And you could do very, very little. Um, I thought, well, even I could learn, learn that. And essentially, I then spent the next, certainly the next 10 years, um, learning, learning coding as, as, as the web developed. So it got more sort of progressively more complicated. And it took about 10 years before... I went, oh my God, I don't understand this at all. You know, you actually do need to be a, a computer science person to understand this. So um, then I then I moved in, moved into management. So um, so I started what was then the first commercial property real estate website in the in the UK and got my first client in full 95 and then spent quite a few years running essentially a web agency and then off that we started to develop, develop uh, our own products so we had a couple of sites um, doing on for doing online research of business parks and office office properties um, and then at an event called MIPIM. MIPIM is the biggest real estate conference in Europe Happens every year in, it was on in last week, actually, in Cannes in the south, south of France. And I went to that in 2001, and I'd had an idea for how all the technologies that were available then could be really useful for running um, buildings. Okay. And, I, and I, met, uh, I met someone there who was the business, business development director of the property management arm of what was then the biggest real estate company in the UK. And this was very late at night after lots of drink and I started whittering on about, you could do this, you could do that, and it would be fantastic. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and then the following, following week, he got in touch and he said, oh, come over, I want to introduce you to the bosses and let's see what we can do. And cut a long story short, I then entered into a, a, a joint venture with, said property property management company and we launched a product called vicinity and the idea of vicinity was using the the the, the word the space around us was our tagline so mm. the idea was what do i need as a as an occupier of space what do i need to make using using my office building easier um for work and what do i need for fun and so it was predicated on the idea that at lunchtime, you could probably walk five to 10 minutes, do something and walk five to 10 minutes back. So we, we took a building, stuck a circle around it, and we did uh, pulled out all the amenities within, within that area. So these okay. are the restaurants, these are the shops, these are the whatever. So it had this, what, what is now tenant, called tenant engagement apps. Yeah. Um, it had those before the idea of tenant engagement that's happened. This is two, 2000, 2001. So half of the site was 
if you look, we always used to describe it as the fluffy side. That's the fun side. Okay. And then it also had a suite of property management tools. So we, over the years, we developed a visitor management system, help desk system, permits to work, all, all, all those license alterations and those sorts of things. So we, we had this sort of mix between the functional stuff of how do I get in my building? How do I register a guest? How do I um, raise a help desk request? And, and the, the fun side. And so that, that went on for quite, quite a few years. Um, and then they had a deal to buy me out after a certain number of years. And being a much bigger player, they, they did. I stayed with them for a while. Well, quite a long time, actually, because I just loved it. Um, and then round about 2013, I started uh, writing my blog. Mm. And I started writing for the trade press. And then slowly over the years, used to do more writing and, and then started doing talking. And then that all developed. And the two years or so before COVID struck, I probably had the most fun of my whole, whole career because I was essentially flying, flying around Europe, giving uh, talks all over the place, which was magnificent. So COVID was certainly a bug in that business model. <laughs> um, <laughs> And But what happened then was at the same time, in end of 2019, um, with, a, with my co-founder of the Academy, a chap called Draw Poleg, which many of your listeners might well, who might well know, we started thinking, well, should we, should we develop, really we should develop a course because both of us worked in PropTech, as it was then called. And there's always this thing in PropTech of you've got the tech people who know nothing about real estate and the real estate people who know nothing about tech. We thought, well, we could probably do a course to uh, help, help explain one to other. And fortunately for us, that was ready to go in March 2020 when the proverbial hit the fan. And we didn't do anything until till May because, you know, remember that time it was like no one knew what on earth was going on. Um, mm-hmm. But, 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 but since then, we've done, I think we've done 12 cohorts, 600-odd students, 46 different countries, every continent apart from Antarctica. So, um, yes, that's a very, that's a, a, long, a longest short version of a long career. <laughs> <laughs> yes, amazing career. Um, I want to ask you about vicinity. So, you know, it took a while for those applications, tenant applications to really take off, right? I mean, it seems like today they're everywhere. There's startups everywhere all around the world and every building, it's what it seems like to me, has one at this point. I want to hear what it's like for you having started this company in 2001 and have it take so long. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts there? Well, it, it's, it's actually quite, quite funny because... The day we launched Vicinity was probably the biggest number of people I've ever had sign up for anything. We had 10,000 people signed up for Vicinity on day one because we had a big event. In, in, in London, there's a development called Broadgate, which is the premier um, estate campus in, in the city of London, the financial district. And it has a fantastic circular area where you have events on. And we put on this amazing amazing show and we had 10,000 people sign up on on day one and so we we actually did quite a lot for quite a few years because we would put we put the service in all the buildings of the of the company that owned that I was in the joint joint venture with so we like finish software on Friday stick it in the building on um, Monday right. because we were the property managers we ran these buildings mm-hmm. um, so so for us it actually it actually worked pretty well for, for quite quite a long a long time in a in a small area it's very much a you know they call it the square mile and so literally there's like a square mile okay. of my life was a we we uh-huh. were a very big thing in the in the in the square mile so yeah but it has it has taken an inordinate inordinately long time to to get to go main, mainstream um but it always struck me as sort of obvious that okay. yeah. it's a service that it's a service that that's needed, um, and we've come on to it. But it, post COVID, it's it's. I think is I think COVID is actually completely transforming this market because it's going from 
something that really everyone should have, but it tended to only be the very top buildings that had had it in mm-hmm. to something that is going to be pretty pretty pervasive. And if you don't have variants on a feed, then um, you're going to start you're going to start having having problems. Absolutely. All right. So you were, you were before COVID, you were going around and speaking. Um, well, by the way, first I want to say, before we move on from your career, I have taken the course and I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening to this that wants to learn about the trends in the, the real estate uh, community, which is all the people that are coming like I did from a tech background, from an engineering background. We, we all need to understand the broader trends in which you're trying to put tech in a building. Well, what's that building here to do? How's that business changing? How does that business work? Who are the types of people that you're working with? Your guys' course is great for uh, t- types of people like me to really understand that bigger picture. So Thank you. thanks for doing and I that. Should say, I, and I should say, I've done your course. It's just as good the other way around. <laughs> very, very complimentary. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing having you and cohort two last year. So, uh, well, so before COVID, though, you were, you were traveling around speaking about how the industry was changing. I'd love if you could kind of give maybe a quick hitter on like, what are the current trends in the industry? And let's maybe start with space as a service. I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of explain that uh, since you invented the term. Um, what, what's what's the, the current trend with space as a service? Okay, the, 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 point behind, the point behind space as a service is that, as I see it, fundamentally, the real estate industry is no longer about real estate. It, of course, is about real, real estate. Everything you know about real estate, um, you, still need, you still need to know. But, then, but just knowing about real estate in the real estate industry is now necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because fundamentally, the industry is moving from being product-based to service-based. Traditionally, we created a product, we sold it, or we let it. Thanks. I'm off. Now, people don't want to buy a product. They want to buy a service. So we're moving from an industry that's selling, that sold, sold a product to now has to deliver a service. And once you, start, once you start to move from being a product industry to a service industry, everything changes. All the, all the your, your skill sets, your mentality, the way you approach customers, who you understand as your customer, all, all, of, the, all of these things change. And that sort of comes under the heading of what I call space as a service. So the idea of space as a service was, was, was twofold. First off, it was literally as a service so I could procure space uh, for an hour, a day, a month, a, a year, a, a couple of years. But whatever wasn't a long lease, you know, you've mm-hmm. look over the last 30 years, gone from 25 years um, upwards only rent reviews, five-year reviews, down to in in most major cities now. I think London's now down to the average lease is sort of six and a half, seven years. I think I think it's similar in America. If you go to somewhere, if you go to somewhere like um, Stockholm, the average lease is like two years, and same in okay. in Paris. So it's moving from from an industry where you signed a long a long lease, and then essentially the uh, the uh, the counterparty could just go away. They they completely <laughs> uninterested once they once you sign the lease. Um, but the other side of space as a service is literally what it says it says on the box. The idea of space that provides the services you need to do whatever it is you need to do as efficiently and effectively as possible. So it's very much based on the idea of with our real estate hats on. What space can we provide someone who's trying to do X? What do we need to provide someone who's trying to do X to enable them to do it best, best as possible? And that, of course, means, means the, the scale. It could mean the, the, the temperature. It could mean the, mean, mean the lighting. It could mean the equipment in there. It could mean the services in there. All manner of things. But the idea is that our job in real estate, in the, in the office market, to be successful, the most successful people in the office market going forward are going to be those who understand the wants, needs, and desires of their customers, 
and their customers are now going to be the individuals in the building. So historically, the customer of a real estate company was whoever signed the lease. Mm-hmm. So if James was the person signing the lease and they had a thousand people working for him, I didn't care anything about a thousand people. <laughs> I only had to please James. If I could get James to sign that lease, boom, I'm away. Now it's the other way, the other way around, because James has now got to James has now got to think about those thousand people and how is he going to make them efficient and effective in space and what and what do they need? So increasingly me as an asset owner is increasingly going to have to work with you as the customer to please your to help you enable your employees to be as productive as possible now there's, there's some things with a real estate hat on we can do and some things we can't do if you run a rubbish company and you're a rotten manager i can't change that <laughs> I, if yeah. you're a bad company, I can't make you a good company. But if you're a good company, I can make you better. I can, I can help you through the physical environments I put you in, get the most, the most out, of, out, out of your people. And that's a completely different mindset. And I think it's where the industry is going. So I, if... if if you look at if you look at the, the real estate industry, as you've talked about so many times, it's an industry of silos, and you have spe- specialists and very skilled people in lo- in, lo- in lots of different lots of different silos. All those silos have got to come together now. So I think of it like this: if you're say you want to create a great workplace, mm-hmm. so I am selling my space to you as a company because I'm saying. I'm going to help you create a space that my competitor can't do. Now, how do I create a great workplace? Well, to do that, you actually currently need six different industries. So you need real estate people. You need IoT people. So you need people who are going to put in the networks. You need data people who are going to understand the data that comes out of those networks. You're going to need workplace designers. You're going to need hospitality people, and you're going to need HR. At the moment, all of those are required to create a great, efficient, and effective workplace. But they are six different industries right. that mainly don't talk, talk to each other. I mean, it's hilarious if you talk to workplace people. They're always joking about how little they talk to HR people. And HR people always go, well, we never talk to the workplace people. And, and it's, it's patently ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous based on the incentives of the, work, of the way that the industry is set up. And it's right. something that's particularly strong in your course, and we cover it in different circumstances in our course. The issue of incentives is so, so important that you can have, you've got these six different industries. They've each got different incentives for what they're, what they've got to do. I need to do that because of this. I need to do that because of this. And then and they're not and they're not aligned. And, they, and in your world, you've got you've got the, the people with the different um, hardware skills, if you like, all with yeah. all with the different in- incentives. But you're never going to create a great workplace. And I'm just talking about offices here for, for now. You're never going to create a great workplace unless long term unless you can align the incentives of all the players. So most fundamentally, you've got to align the interests of the landlord, the management company, and the, the, the occupier, who at the moment have three very different uh, alignments. And this is going to be something that's very, very diff- difficult to do, because if you take my argument, of you've got to take these six skill sets, align the interests, to create a great workplace. Who the hell is going to do that? Because, you know, am I going to do that as a landlord? Am I going to do that as the company? Am I going to do that as a property management company? Possibly, 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 more likely, a another industry will develop that will be approaching the problem to solve this. And that's basically the flex industry. This is where the flex industry has, has, has come up. 
Because effectively, the flex industry is a software and services layer on top on top of the hardware of a building. Okay. So in a flex in the flex uh, industry, you've got to be bothered about all those bits. Yeah. Because you've really got to have an awful lot of control over your space, and you've really got to understand how your space is being used because you're selling it by the you're selling it by the by the short term. You can't just you can't just think about it every year. I mean, I just when one of my hobby horses is how people create great workplaces, and then they go, "Oh, I'll co- I'll, well, they, first of all, they say, well, we'll do a post-occupancy study, and then they never do. Um, or they say, oh, we'll come back next year and see how you get an odd, you know, and a year later, and for eight months of that year, the workplace hasn't worked very well, because it looked beautiful until you put people in it. But unless you monitor these things on an ongoing basis, in the flex industry, you've got to monitor stuff every day because you're sending it every day and you've got to optimize. You've continually got to monitor and optimize your space and understand the wants, needs and desires of your of your customer. And that's why the flex industry is getting is 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 getting getting so so big. Um, And and that's that's really the point behind. um, behind space, space as a service and where, where I think the industry fundamentally, your worlds and my worlds are going to have to collide. Because I've, I've, I've listened to a number, of, a number of your podcasts and some fantastic people and the best education you can get in your industry is to sit down for a few weeks and shut the door and listen to all your, your podcasts. Um, but a lot, a, a lot of them are, are very clearly saying our, our objective is X. And that is the right objective for them. And it's the objective they're selling. And in many ways, it's the objective that the customer is buying. But you don't really get, you don't get the position of actually start with the customer and work and work back to the technology. You know, there's this famous um, vi- video of, of Steve Jobs, and it was when he came back to Apple, and he was giving an, uh, an all all hands meeting, and people were lining up to ask him questions, and someone someone got up and and said, basically, what are you doing here? You don't know anything about technology. What do you know about Java? Why are you here? Why should we be interested? Why should we be pleased that you've come back? And it's quite funny because you can see Steve Jobs, who was, you know, a brilliant man, but not famously the um, uh, the least combative person you've ever seen, getting really, really close. And, he's, and he says nothing for about 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into this fantastic talk about you have to start with the customer and work back to the technology. And he says, what we need to do here at Apple is understand what great things can we do for our customer? What what do they want? What do they not know that they want, that we know that they would want if they had it? And then then we'll work out how how to do it. And that fundamentally is where I think this, the office industry is, is going to have to get to. Now, this brings us nicely into the whole COVID thing. The mm-hmm. Pre-COVID, what was it? 5% of people used to work, work remotely full-time. Lots of people went off Friday afternoons and all that sort of stuff. Then suddenly we got to March 20, 2020, and 95% of the knowledge workers around the world went home. And funnily enough, what we learned over the last few years is that Broadly speaking, working from home works. We've actually discovered that the world hasn't fallen in. There's an awful lot of companies that, frankly, have had really, really good pandemics, um, have done amazing things. You know, finance has done amazingly well. Um, online retail's done well. The tech company's done incredibly well. And everyone's been working without an office. And two years is long enough to change your muscle, mem- muscle memory. If it had been yeah. three months, it would have been boing, and back we go. Now you can just see everyone going, why? I'm not coming back five days a week. 
And I know there's, there's an increasing push in certain areas. And I, I see it over there and it happens over here as well. You get stupid ideas like it's your patriotic duty to go back to the office. You know, you've got to, you've got to save the city centre. It's your responsibility. And everyone's going, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. And there is really, really good research and analysis has been done on how people have been since, since, since being away. And the best stuff is actually by a company called Leesman, do the Leesman Index. And they've done fantastic work on um, understanding re remote needs. The bottom line is essentially for roughly 70% of people, working from home is basically okay. It's fine. Does it cover everything? No, but it's basically fine. For 30% of people, it's very much not fine for a whole, for a whole, a whole a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. But overall, not surprisingly, it's a bell, it's a bell curve of interest. There's a, a maybe five, 10% of people want to work in the office five days a week. Five to 10% of people want to be fully remote forever. And then there's a bell curve of people who basically are perfectly happy to do what they need to do as they're doing it now. But it really would be nice to come in and see you. And it yeah. would be better to come and see the, 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 the client every now and again. And it would be good for our team to get together. And when we're dealing with this task, definitely it would be better to be in. So you've got this situation brewing now where the, smart, the smarter companies, well, the, the, the dumb companies are fighting it. The dumb companies will fight it and they'll go, well, as soon as we can, let's just get everyone back in. What will happen then is the people who can leave, the ones you don't want to leave, will, will leave. But the smarter companies are, are leaning in into this and really analysing at a very granular level, what is it that James needs? What is it that the team or teams that work, James works in needs? And therefore, what do we need to provide in terms of in terms of real estate? And it could be James is, I don't know, might be part of the part of the sales team, and sales teams are more likely to want to spend more time huddled huddle together. And they go, well, we want to be in three times, three times a week, give us some desks, tight, tightly packed, you know, turn the heat up a bit. We like, we like it like that. Mm -hmm. The accounts department will be going. There's no way I'm going to travel two hours to sit there quietly, say 45 words to someone else today, and go tippy tappy on my on my key, keyboard all day. Why, why am I going to do this? So, right. real the the office, and I think the office, I think the office, I think the right office run in the right way is going to generate more income than it's ever generated before. But the wrong office operated in the wrong way is pretty much obsolete. But what I mean by the right office in, operated in the right way is that the, the elephant in the room with all of this stuff is that pre-COVID offices are incredibly badly used, underutilized. You mm -hmm. know, the average, average utilization of an office pre-COVID was around about 50%. And then also, the actual satisfaction level with the office was very low as well. One of the questions that Leesman ask in their surveys, and they do it for the in-office one and the home one, is how, how, um, how much does your workplace enable you to be productive? Or no, does your workplace enable you to be productive? And pre-COVID, it was round about 60% said yes. So 40% okay. of office workers were saying, my workplace does not enable me to be productive. So if you, if you have 50% occupancy and 40-50% dissatisfaction with space, there's something very, very wrong. Right. In my theory, with this, these companies that are going to really think about the wants, needs, and desires of their customers and are going to think about what that means in terms of the the spaces and the services they give, I think you're going to see spaces operating at like 70% 70, 70 plus occupancy with 70% plus satisfaction. And that's worth a hell of a lot of money. But they're going totally. to take less, they're going to take a lot less space and they're 
going to take a lot better space. So there's, there's, there's the line, half the space, double the service. And, totally. that's, and this, is not, this is not starting from the point of view of let's save money. In many circumstances, you will be able to save money, but it's not really about saving money because, you know, I know it's come up in your podcast before, the thing about 330, 300, it's mm-hmm. the people that are expensive. Right. You know, that's, that's the thing that really cost, costs you the money. So the, the aim of a space, if I, if, I can take a, if I can take 100 people and put them in, in the right space with the right environmental conditions, perfectly suited to the jobs to be done that they have, I'm going to get incredible productivity out of, productivity out of them, way more than um, they get in the, in, the, in, the wrong, in the wrong type of space. And that's what people are, are going to pay, pay for. So. That's what I mean about your side of the industry and my side of the industry coming together. The starting point has got to be, how do we enable these great workplaces? And what's needed, if you like, at a hardware side, a software side, and a, and a services side? Totally. Hey, guys. Just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. So if I could repeat that back to you from the standpoint of this audience, you know, people that care about getting technology deployed in buildings, technology is going to be really important in the coming years in the office industry if it enables better experiences or not only better experiences, the right kinds of experiences for the occupants. Is that is that kind of the summary of like where things are headed? Yes, yes. It's can this building provide me with the controls I need to, well, can this building provide me with the, the monitoring that's necessary to understand my needs and then provide me with the tools to satisfy those, those needs? So I, I think of it in, 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 three, in three buckets that you need the technology to understand how your building is working. So all the stuff that's covered a lot in, a lot in, your, in, your, in your podcast, you know, is, is this building work, working efficiently, basically? Then how is this building being used? Which spaces are being used, which are not being used? Where do people, how do people move around? Where do they go? What do they not go? And then an understanding of what it is people are doing doing in in the space. And you need you need all those in, inputs to to understand that James needs a room that's super quiet, and he needs high speed connectivity. He needs this level of lighting, preferably if it was if 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 it was decorated in a certain way and had this certain type of furniture, boom, that's absolutely the perfect spot. So how, how can this building do it for me? So that when James comes in, he moves into a build, into a room, this is my sort of fantasy, that wherever I go, the building's gonna adapt, is gonna know me. Anthony likes it like this, and it's just gonna ad- adapt for me. I don't actually want to, you know, there's lots of talk about, oh, well, there's, you know, you can have some controls and you have an app and it does this. You actually don't want that. The building needs to know, needs to understand me and my needs. Now, admittedly, I need to train it. I'm sort of thinking it almost like training a, an AI model. You know, you have to, you have to tell, tell the, you have to tell the algorithm what, what, what you want. So I want to tell the building for a certain amount of time what I want. And then I want to go in a room and I want the building to give it to me. And I know <laughs> I know that's actually really difficult to, to do on the other end, but, fun, but fundamentally that, that's, that's the point that you have to marry up. What are the, what are the needs of the customer 
And can the building can the building just just provide it? Now that's so you know that's what I start thinking with 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 smart buildings that I see I see quite a lot about smart buildings, which is about oh we could use this technology, that technology, whatever. And as you said, loads of time, and lots of your 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 guests have said, there's an amazing amount of data that is put out by buildings. That's just well, that's nice, but no one ever does anything does anything about it. But I do a lot of work with with the on the other end with the with the landlords, and I try and say to the landlords when they're thinking about you know what is a smart building, exactly this point of what is the what is the user experience that you're going to sell to your to this customer, and you're going to sell something fabulous to this customer. Mm-hmm. How the hell do you deliver it? And okay. so you can't talk about, oh, I'm going to go and talk to the HVAC people and then I'll go and talk to the, the, these people and then I'll go to talk to the... You, you can't do it. You, you have to start from, this is, this is the output. It's not the energy use or whatever. This is the output, is that user experience, which is made up of X, Y, Z. Now, how do, now how do, we, do, how do we do that? Um, which which obviously is not easy, but if you don't if you don't start the discussion based on the idea of creating a great user experience, then then you've got a, a then you've got a problem. Because I, I I have this line that I use that UX equals brand and brand equals value, and I try and use the analogy of if you think of um. If you think of the luxury car market, so over here we think of Mercedes, Audi, BMW. The mm-hmm. most important customer for each of them is the person buying their first luxury car. Because it's it's a bit like the Jesuits. Once they've got you, they've got you for they've got you for life. <laughs> and and you know, I was a well until I moved to Tesla, I had Audis for years and years and years. My brother okay. has always had BMWs. And my father for 40 odd years was a Mercedes chap. Okay. And so they have amazing brands, but you're buying into a user experience. You know, the, the, the point about, you know, you buy an entry-level Mercedes and it has just that little bit of what it's like to sit in an S class. <laughs> it isn't, but it has that little, it has that little feel of, of it. Um, and what I think you're increasingly going to get is you're either going to get a few landlords who are going to be able to create these effectively consumer brands and or you're going to get a series of the brands that are developing really, really strong now. So the Industrious, Convene, people like that. They have very particular audiences in mind, customer, user expense. You go into a Convene, you know what you're going to get. It's like, it's like in the hotel market that you have hotels at one end of the market, so the lower end of the market, no frills, but they can be brilliant at what they're trying to do. And at the other end, you go into a Four Seasons and it's wonderful, but it's very mm. much designed for their, their customer. And whereas the office market used to be essentially a generic product, what do you want? 200,000 square feet of grade A space, please. No. I don't want that anymore. I want the user experience. And the trick, the longer term trick, is going to be, well, you go to Industrious, don't you, if you want that. Or you go to Convene, or you go to XYZ, you know, name name company. I mean, it's, it, it's funny. We all have a go, and in many ways, rightly so, at WeWork, um, who clearly did lots of stuff wrong. But they sure as hell did lots of stuff right as well. And in terms of, a consumer brand of office, WeWork was the first consumer brand of the office. In the sense of if you went into the street and asked the man on the street, do you know who WeWork is? They go, yes. Mm-hmm. If you went, went to the man in the street and said, do you know who, oh, I don't know, Land Securities or Tishman Spare, are they? Never heard of them. Yeah. yeah. And I think this, this isn't all the market, but this is the, this is, I think it's probably the top 30, 40% of the market is going to be, this is, this is the space as a service market where 
I still need an office. I don't need it five days a week. And I don't need as much of it as you maybe hoped I want. But I do need an office and I don't need it for very long, but I want it to be really good and it's got to do this and I will pay for that. Um, and and, and that, that's, that's going to be the game. It's going to move from trying to let the largest amount of space for the longest period of time to actually the smallest amount of place for the shortest period of time. Because mm-hmm. there's a hell of a premium to, to sell you one star, you know, Starbucks. I mean, the old joke about how the hell do you pay $5 for a coffee? You, you know, there was, there was a time they used to just keep refilling it for you. You know, it, it's all brand and it's premium and it's what you want at the, at the time. And, you're, and you'll pay for that. And I think what you'll find is a lot of the end users will end up, instead of, say, taking 10,000 square feet, they'll take 5,000 square feet, but they'll pay what they would have paid seven and a half for. Mm, okay. So and that has got to be that has got to be the game. That as an occupier, I'm saving money. But as a as a provider, I'm actually making more money per square foot. So you're going to get this. You're going to get this situation of instead of a rising market raising all boats, which is what happened used to happen in real estate. You know, is when the market went up, everyone was a genius, and when it went down, everyone was an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to get both at the same time now. And I think you're, you're going to get two buildings next to each other, one of, one, one of which is packed and worth a fortune, and the other one is barely, hmm. is almost empty. Okay. But it's a right. big technical game. Yeah, I want to I ask you about how to make them, how to make buildings more suitable for this future. But first, I want to talk about sustainability before we, before we tie that in. So can you talk about, and you've been writing a lot more about this recently, especially with the recent events in Eastern Europe, but, um, well, Ukraine, just to yeah. be specific. Um, can you talk about what the current trend is in sustainability and specifically decarbonization, right? Um, and how that's going to change things uh, in the real estate industry. And then I want to circle back into, okay, what does an asset need to look like uh, moving forward? Yeah. In, um, in, in, the, in the UK, and this is pretty much across the board in Europe, and as far as I understand, similar in the US, maybe not quite as advanced in the demands um, in the US than, than Europe so far. But it was, it was coming, it was coming in anyway. We, there was a big move towards investors were being were being hit over the head to promise that they would invest in sustainable assets and we and we and the message was very clear that if you don't invest in, in it, it it was getting it was getting to the point of one big developer said to me the thing about sustainability now is you don't have any option because if you don't do it you can't finance your building so over here, it had got to the stage. If you try and build a building, a great line in one of your podcasts recently talking about a code building, which was the worst building you were actually allowed to build. Right. <laughs> I love that. Um, if you try and do that, you won't get you won't get it fund, funded over here now. So you've got the in, the investors pushing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got regulators who are equally being being pushed and. And you know, certainly there's there's the push to uh, net net zero by 2050. But the point about net zero by 2050 is that you can't wait until 2045 to worry about it, because if you don't get to point X by 2025 or point Y by 2030, you probably ain't going to get to to there. So it, it's all being pushed along earlier. And I know this is happening in America, isn't it? In, particularly in California, in and in New York, there's various regulations that if you don't do X, we're going to come and hit you really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got investors, you've got regulators, and increasingly you've got end, end users. Um, you know, there's not that many people as vocal as a dear old Gre- Greta Thunberg, but by and large, particularly younger people want to live, want to work in sustainable places. You know, 
to an extent, old there's lots of old codgers like like me, you know, or certainly the Trumps of the world don't care because it's not going to bother them. But it's yeah. going to bother their grandchildren because they're going to have to live with the, the consequences of all this. Mm-hmm. So you've got a very strong three-party push towards sustainability. So it was happening anyway. <clears throat> and as an example of that, a friend of mine who runs one of the big developers over here was telling me the story about a building that they had and they would, went through the whole leasing process. And it was a usual thing, arguing about this, that and the other, back and forth, back and forth. And then eventually they signed and then they went out for a drink afterwards. And he said to the, the, the boss of, the, of his new customer, you know, why did you take... Why did you sign in the end of the day? And he said, it was very simple, really, Stephen. You had the most sustainable building available. And we wanted the most sustainable building in London, and it was yours. That's why we did. It was almost <laughs> really like nothing else mattered. That's, yeah. what, that's, what, that's what mattered. We wanted to be, partly because presumably a lot of them actually genuinely wanted that, but also the number of boxes you take. What am I in the most sustainable building? Tick, 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 tick. You know, uh-huh. it, 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 it works for, for lots of people. So all of that was coming anyway. And I was thinking even before, even before all the Ukraine stuff kicked off, this is going to be, this combined with COVID, because just, just to just to put the, join, join the two, the whole point about COVID is it, showed us that actually buildings can do you a lot of damage. Buildings can kill you. If, you go in the wrong, if you're in the wrong building with the wrong ventilation and someone's mm-hmm. got the wrong virus, virus it can kill you. So the, requir- the push towards air quality was clearly going to be a big thing. And, of course, you get the, 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 the push to sustainability. But effectively, if you solve one, you solve the other. Build a sustainable building and you're going to have good air quality. Have good mm-hmm. air quality, and you're probably going to have a sustainable building. The two nicely, nicely marry, marry together. So you've got the, you've got all these, all these hammers pushing in that direction. You've got COVID making it that if anyone is sensible, they would not be going back into any office buildings that couldn't tell them what the air quality is like. Um, I'm slightly surprised how it's not a bigger thing. Because I would be very nervous if I had to go back into an office full time. Mm-hmm. I want to know, you know, put it yeah. up on the wall. Tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got all of that happening, and then boom, the horrors of Ukraine pop up, and in Europe we are currently very, very dependent on Russian oil and gas, and it has to stop. Doesn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe it has to stop. Let's wind it down slowly. No, this has to stop. And there's lots of talk over here at the moment of actually we need to drop all this net zero stuff because we've got bigger energy problems. I think it's the opposite. I think this means we clearly we've got to, at the moment we've got to deal with lots of people who probably would rather not, particularly Saudi, to get the oil from them, which is slightly less worse than buying it from Putin. We need to do that. But... To me, this is like turbocharge the whole sustainability agenda because we have got to get to energy resilience across, across Europe, ASAP. And, and frankly, the faster we do it, the faster we will do it, which sounds silly, but what I mean is the faster we invest in sustainable technologies, actually the curve there was, a, there was a research report came out last week that, that showed that if you were looking at, at, at the curve, instead of just going like that, if you sort of gen- gently invest, it gets better over the time. If you push hard, you can, you can tilt, that, tilt that curve. So you could actually get to sustainability um, quicker. So you've got this huge confluence of things now that I don't care what you say, you've got to build a sustainable building You've got to give it good air quality. And if you want anyone in it, you've got to think about the customer experience. And if and that's it. <laughs> you've got to make that happen. That's your problem. Go and work out how to, um, how to do it all. So if we sort of try to tie a bow on all of that, is that 
like what is a smart asset then? Is a smart asset one that is all of those things you just described? I see a smart asset as one that enables the people within it to perform as efficiently and effectively as they are capable of doing. This building does nothing to impede hmm. my, cog my cognitive function. So, so the classic thing, you know, there's, there's so much research about um, the different, the, the impact on cognitive function of CO2 levels, temperature, noise. My, my idea is, there's all the talk of how, how, how can you define productivity in a, in a workplace? Now, as the real estate people, as I said earlier, if you're my customer and you run a rotten company, I can't make you more productive. You're a rotten company. What I can do, though, is, and the only thing I can do with my real estate hat on, is I can put your people in the environmental conditions that I, that I know they can perform as well as they're capable of performing. So you are sitting in an area that there's no reason... You have no excuse to say, oh, you know, I wasn't thinking straight. No, you were, if you weren't thinking straight, it's because you can't think straight. <laughs> nothing environmental about the reason why. So, so and, and that's what I think productivity is. And it is being able to sell, say to people, look, as far as possible, as this last month, the temperature was this, the CO2 levels were this, the noise was this, the lighting, lighting was this. And they're all absolutely within the, mm -hmm. not just the bounds of tolerance, but, you know, this is optimum, optimum space. So if your people didn't do a good job, there's another reason. But I'm with my real estate hat on, I can't deal with that. Right. I can only deal. So that's what, that's what a, smart, a smart asset is. Okay. The last question I want to ask you is around people. So I've seen all the people come through your course. That's a diverse and sort of, you know, global, really, really smart community. And then you've seen all the people coming through my course. So that's a, a different community, but very similar in terms of intelligence, right? Um, so when you think about smart assets, like what are the types of skill sets and mindsets and types of people we need to sort of create this transition um, from dumb assets to smart assets? I, I, think it's a, I think it's a case of people tend to fit in three, three, different, three different camps. You get thinkers, feelers, and doers. So thinkers tend to be the people who can analyze, analyze the situation. They're very good at un, understanding causality, correlation and causality. You get the feelers who are people with very high IQ and empathy, who can understand the problems, the issues of the customer they're trying to look, look, at, look after. So one, the, the, the thinkers are understanding the, the uh, A equals A, B equals B reason, what happened. The feelers are understanding the, the why why it happened how mm -hmm. did that make them how did that make them feel etc and then the doers are the people who the people who sold who, who then deal with it so in in terms of the the the, the thinkers in, in in your world would be the people who understand who can understand who can get that great big map of the hundred different systems running in the building and under, understand all the connections and can yeah. understand what needs to be connected. The feelers would be the people who look beyond the, we want to use energy as efficiently as possible to, well, well why? And again, on one of your podcasts today, someone was talking about the thing about cramping, cramping people in an office, the, the, the trend towards, you know, Higher, higher density and so mm -hmm. that's all very well but everyone's sitting there with their head, head headphones on trying yeah. to ignore everyone as they as they as they as they as they cramped up that's the that's something a feeler would understand that you're over you're over you're over optimizing steven sanofsky mm -hmm. who used to run windows for microsoft has had this great phrase of um 
about about making making things as friction free as is sensible. Some things shouldn't be totally friction free. I know Mike, Mike Del Prete, who, who um, does a lot of work on the residential market, talks about one click house buying, and he says, "Can you imagine if you actually had that though? Can you imagine the exact anxiety mm. of?" I can buy a house with one with one button. <laughs> do I do I push it? If that that would be an example of making something actually too efficient because you'd yeah. actually be creating creating anxiety. You know, if I've made the wrong with that, that that sort of thing. And and then and then as I say, the the the, the doers would then be would then take the, take those understandings and work out well what the hell do we do about it? And mm. they'd be the ones who say well. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to, you've got to do that. But but these groups have got to work together. And he said, I don't know if this is just a real estate thing or happens in in other in industries. But we don't. We tend to not create multifunctional teams. Mm-hmm. So we don't naturally, you know, stick thinkers, feelers, and doers together. We stick all the thinkers there. All the you know, it's like, oh, well, there's the marketing department, there's the accounts department, there's the engineering department, there's the IT department. One of the things that I was always most struck about looking at uh, the way Amazon work, and Amazon are an incredible company for looking at how they actually work. And I'm not sure if this is actually true, actually true but it was what someone I either read or someone told me, that Amazon actually doesn't have an IT department as such. So there is not an IT department. It has loads and loads of IT department, but the IT people are all dif- all dispersed amongst mm. groups. I understand that you know the, the Amazon. I don't know if it's still like this, but you know Bezos used to talk about the two pizza group, didn't he? That no can, no group should be bigger than two two pe- two pizzas. Well, you'd always have an IT person in that. So mm-hmm. the IT people, you know, they're they're on secondment. As it were, so everyone's mi- mixed mixed up. So I think that's that's where it's going to become very very interesting. To what extent do you bring in um, anthropologists in into your world, for instance? And okay. I, and I've seen I've seen quite a lot of this actually. Anthropologists pop pop up of, because they understand, you know, they're in the sort of the the think and the and the and the feel sort of side, but overall, I think we we need more input. We need more diversity of diversity of of input into what whatever whatever organisation. But particularly now, mm-hmm. if if the end point is a service that's got to be delivered, you have no choice but to have multifunctional teams because if it's just a product. You can get to a product with a non-multifunctional team. There it is, boom. Different outputs, put it together, and there's the thing. But as an ongoing service, so you know, th- uh, build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn, build, measure, build, measure, learn. So totally different skills. I love that, I love that answer. Thinkers, feelers, doers, and yes. anthropologists. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, well, that's that's amazing. This has been so much fun. Can we wrap up with some carve-outs? Do you have something you'd like to share with people? Book, movie, TV show, podcast? Well, it, 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 it was it was funny when you when you said have you got got a suggestion? Oh, I just going to look through my my Amazon book orders. So I, I clicked on Amazon book orders. There's 683 books I realized I bought with Amazon since oh, wow. since I had, had an account there. And I go, oh, well, I better not do 683 suggestions. But there was there was one book that came out uh, about four years ago, 2018, written by the chap who is now the CEO of Accenture Tech, a chap called Paul Doherty, and it's called Human Plus Machine, Reimagining Work in the Age of AI. And okay. I think this is, this is actually really worth reading because it's – it fits in with everything we've been been talk, talking about. But humans on their own are not going to win. The machines on their own are not going to win. What is going to win is humans who can understand how to leverage the machines and the machines that have been designed 
in order to make the human the human better. And what the, what this book does is it's very good at explaining what machines are good at, what computers are good at, and explaining what humans are good at. And fortunately, they're not the same. Otherwise, we'd really be in a problem. But you know, what we what we are good at as humans is what machines are not good at. And this talks about the how, how these two worlds are going to in, intersect and, and argues that the, the success in the future has, has to come from technologists understanding more humanity, and if you like the humanities people understanding more, more technology, which again gets back to thinkers, feeders, doers, multifunctional teams, services, and everything. So human plus machine, reimagining work in the age of AI. And then if I, if I can plug my own, own stuff, my blog at antonyslumbers.com. And if anyone um, enjoys Twitter, then my Twitter at antonyslumbers is, is fun. And I, I put loads of, loads of recommendations and stuff in, in those all the time. But Human Plus Machine is a, is a good book worth reading. Totally. Yeah, it sounds very related to what we've been talking about today. And yeah, I'd recommend your blog uh, for anyone that wants to hear more about well, everything we've talked about today. These are the topics that you've been writing about for a very long time. Um, okay, so the book I'm reading this week, the one I'll share is called Lost Connections. Um, and it's got a really like funny from the standpoint of like, I, I feel weird about sharing this because it says the subtitles, why you're depressed and how to find hope. Um, I don't really find myself a depressed person, but I was I was at my friend's house and they had this on the bookshelf, and I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna ch- I'm gonna pop this open and see what it's like," and it hooked me immediately. But it's it's super related to what we've been talking about. So the reason it hooked me though is because I struggle with anxiety, and anxiety and depression are like uh, brother sister type of ailments. But the reason I think it's important to like share as it relates to this conversation is. Um, he's basically tying depression and anxiety to lost connections. The title of the book, connections to other people, connections to community, connections to nature, um, connections to our own health, connections to meaningful values. And there, I think there are two more that I can't think of right now, but it's essentially like what could a building provide that could help with those things. There's probably a lot in there in terms of the community and connections and health and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So Maybe our maybe our anthropologists and thinkers and feelers and doers need to be need to be thinking about you know the psychology well, of depression and that kind of thing. Well, it, it's it's interesting that because one of the points I, I didn't didn't make is part of this this future office that I see is I think of it as the office has got to be somewhere that catalyzes human skills because the machines are going to do what the machines do. So what are we going to do? We're going to be, we actually need to, to uh, push our own human, human skills. And you know what it's like? You go in the right space and you think, oh, I love it here. You go in the wrong space and you go, oh, it's horrible here. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about that. So if you, go into, if you go into a space and it catalyzes your human skills, then yeah. you've hit the bullseye. Love it. All right. That's a great place to end off. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it, James. Thank you. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.